In this episode of the Engineering Commons, we talk with electrical engineer Megan Pollock about being an engineering role model. She also shares with us how the technology for digital movie projection can be used for medical advances. And we also equate, probably unfairly, software with rust. The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 62, Role Model, August 21st, 2014. So Jeff, did you have a role model when you were growing up? Well, I never really thought about it all that much. You know, I ended up becoming an engineer, and I guess that to a certain extent, my father, who was a mechanical engineer, was a, a role model for me. But I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't grow up thinking about, well, I want to become a writer, or I want to become, which I did want to do, uh, but I didn't have like a role model like, this is the writer I wanted to be. I didn't, you know, it wasn't like I wanted to be Hemingway. And, and I really didn't know that I wanted to be an engineer. So I can't say that I, I grew up having a role model, but certainly once I got into industry, I had a couple of uh, wonderful engineers that took me under their wing uh, once I got out to the workplace and uh, kind of tried to try to teach me the, the ways that the workplace worked and what to do and what not to do and kept me out of trouble. And uh, to that extent, they were certainly helpful, not only for, for advising me and what not to do, but I could look to their behavior and their mannerisms uh, and their patience, especially with me, and say, well, this is, uh, this is what being a good engineer is all about. And, and so in that, in that respect, they were good role models for me at that point. What, what about you, Brian? Uh, I, had, I had several good role models. Uh, most of my technical role models were people that uh, taught me in college and mentored me, and, and especially when I got out to industry in my first jobs. It's, it was very important for, uh, to find the people that taught me the trade, if you will. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that was a contrib- uh, contributing factor to much of my success. Yeah, it's, there's no doubt that, that having somebody to guide you and give you a little advice along the way is, is very beneficial. Can I butt in real quick, Jeff, and ask, because you're our token Mechie, did they teach you the ways of the forces? <laughs> the ways of the forces? <laughs> I'm sorry. Stupid jokes are kind of my thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, they did not teach me the ways of the forces, but uh, they, they did teach me, uh, you know, who to go talk to on the shop floor. There's a lot of, uh, there's sort of a hierarchy of power on the shop floor. Mm-hmm. And it's not the same as the organizational chart. And so they were good at telling me who you'd go to, uh, you know, if you needed to get something through inspection, you didn't necessarily go to the top of the organization, but there was somebody in the department you could go to to get things done. Or if you needed a part out of the parts bin, uh, there was somebody you went and talked to. And so that sort of inside information was very helpful early on. Was there ever a conversation where a, a wizened old graybeard sat you down and maybe handed you a micrometer and said, you know, this was your father's mic? Not as clumsy or as random as a uh, a ruler. <laughs> uh, no, it wasn't. But as it turns out, I did end up hiring into the same department that my father worked at nearly thirty years prior. So there were people in in that department when I hired in who didn't know my father when he worked there prior. All right, well, so I'm just going to come up with a bunch of Star Wars jokes now for the rest of the episode. So <laughs> we should probably just introduce our guest. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, that, that fit so, too perfectly. <laughs> well, so let me uh, let me just say that that uh, 
there's certainly a need for role models, that young engineers need role models, and, and we need it throughout the sort of the development of, of the engineering process, uh, or we need it throughout the process of developing a young engineer. So there are role models needed when we're very young uh, to sort of inspire us. We need it, you know, as we're preparing to think about college and let us know what's getting in, those in college to get us through that, those when we get into the workplace. And so there's no doubt there there's a great deal of power in being a role model in guiding others and that we need to be conscious of the effect we have on others and how we might be unknowingly serving as role models for others. So uh, in just a minute, we're, we're going to talk to our, our guests this evening about that. But before I get into that, I just wanted to mention that I noticed F, as after I put out this last episode, uh, I did as I normally do on Thursdays. I put out the episode and, you know, checked an hour or two later to the, check the download count to see, you know, that something's going on. And I noticed it was a very low uh, download count. And I thought, hmm, that seems a little odd. And so I waited a few more hours and it was still low. And I started to get suspicious, but I thought, well, I'll wait overnight. You know, maybe things will pick up. And the next day, at a point where we might have hundreds of downloads, I still had, I think, 19. And I said, well, this is a problem. And uh, so it turns out that FeedBurner, through, who we, through whom we uh, send our feed uh, for everybody to uh, know that there's an update, uh, was puking on the fact that all of a sudden, the, the, the information I was sending it was more than 512K because I've been including all the information, all the show notes for all the episodes, and we're now up to episode 62. And it decided that that was too much. So my choice was I could either send everybody in, in the feed, I could send them the sh- just the summary, a short version of the show notes, and if you want the show notes, you go to the website, or I could truncate the number of shows that we deliver to everybody and it wouldn't be all 62 it might be you know 30 of those so i decided to to allow all the shows to be there and to send everybody the summary so if you uh i want to know from our listening audience if that's okay with you if you have a problem with it let us know say something in the comments send an email to admin at the engineering commons.com uh, if you you know and, and we can work out uh, whatever the majority of the listening audience wants us to do. Uh, but I just thought I'd mention that uh, we had that problem, and I want to make sure everybody gets back on the, uh, the podcast feed and, and isn't having any problems with it. So if you, if you, And if you are having problems with it and you somehow get to this uh, feed, please let us know. So that having been said, we'll get on with our show about role models. And uh, to do that, we've invited someone that uh, has some experience in this area, uh, our guest for this episode is electrical engineer Megan Pollock, who started her career with Texas Instruments. Having recently received her PhD in engineering education from Purdue University, Megan is now the Director of Professional Development for the National Alliance for Partnerships and Equity. An energetic advocate for equity, access, and diversity in education in the workplace, Megan works tirelessly to expand the number of people who benefit from entering the engineering profession. Megan, welcome to the Engineering Commons. Jeff, thanks so much. I'm really excited to be here with you guys tonight. Well, we're delighted that you could join us. Um, so we normally start these uh, conversations, Megan, uh, since we talk about engineering and, we're, and most of us are engineers, uh, by asking what got you interested in engineering? Well, that's actually a really big part of my story and that I, um, in my K-12 upbringing, I was um, in lots of math and science classes, like most engineers will say. Um, but I was actually equally prepared for careers on the other side of the fence as well. And I was really interested in those kind of creative things. Um, 
And when it came time to pick a, a college degree and a career path, um, even though like I had been in every computer science program class that they they had my high school. In fact, my junior high programming teacher moved to the high school to create an AP computer science class for me. Um, wow. And so like I had this upbringing and this, this training and my father is a programmer, my grandfather's a programmer. And so I had this strong background in that. Um, but when it came time to pick a career, I was picking things like interior design and, you know, <laughs> elementary teacher and, um, and it came down to the very last draw. I was registered to be an interior design student at one institution. And mm-hmm. it was like two weeks before I graduated high school. And I heard about and found out about a, a scholarship fellowship program to encourage women to become engineers. And being a student who had really significant financial need, I opted for the full scholarship. And (laughs) not even knowing what an engineer was. Um, so, so yeah, so I started at Texas Women's University in this program where you, the, the plan was for you to get an undergrad in computer science and math and then go on to get a master's in electrical engineering from Texas Tech. And then you would do co-ops and internships throughout, um, throughout your school. And so I don't think I actually learned what an engineer was until I was in my master's program, but, um, Yeah, so I liked it because I liked the idea that um, it was innovative and I liked that people found it to be a prestigious career and um, it was highly respected and I heard they made a lot of money. That that never hurts. <laughs> yeah. So having having started in the the uh, with your undergrad in computer science and then getting a master's degree in electrical engineering, you may be in a good position to answer this sort of ongoing debate that we have as to whether we should be calling software engineering quote unquote, real engineering? Um, I don't know. I mean, so I, the whole plan for me was to always go on to get a master's in engineering and then work at Texas Instruments. I mean, they were grooming us to be TI, you know, minions. And um, <laughs> <laughs> so I never became a software engineer. Um, so I'm not really, I don't know about the debate. I mean, I think in principle, engineering is a lot about design and creating and, and building something or designing some kind of process that improves efficiency and whatnot. Um, so I don't have an issue with um, people who design software as being called engineers, um, but it sounds like you guys might. <laughs> we try to come off as unbiased, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, so there is uh, a certain difference between the having to deal with the entropy. I mean, if you're, if you're a mechanical engineer, you have to deal with, you know, with rust and fatigue. And if you're a, uh, uh, electrical engineer, you have to deal with, uh, you know, uh, contacts wearing out, that sort of thing. And those are some issues that I think that software engineers don't often have to deal with. Uh, although I've recently come to the belief that they have their own little, sort of entropy to worry about, and that is the continuing change in versions of software. So if they write for, you know, one one version of a tool set or tool chain, uh, then everything may change as, as time goes along. And so maybe that's their version of, of having to deal with Rust. Or it's Microsoft pushing a obscure DLL update, and all of a sudden your $100,000 machine doesn't work anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> Microsoft oxidation, same thing, really. <laughs> Actually, that's there's an analogy there. Could you consider users who don't want to get off XP as rust? <laughs> oh gosh, I'm going to use that someday. 
I'll only charge you a small licensing fee. I don't like being called that. <laughs> well, I never uh, meant to insult you, our grand <laughs> podcast vizier. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Megan, you... I believe worked uh, as part of this this uh, ongoing program. You were able to do a few co-op stints with Texas Instruments. Yeah, I did. So right after my first um, year at Texas Women's University, I had a two month. Um, they they actually called that one kind of an internship, and then I returned. So that was in Dallas, and then I um, on my own. I you know through the network that I made while I was there coordinated to have a 10 month co-op out in Tucson. And so I moved out to Tucson and had a really great experience working with the high performance analog group there. And then, um, and then in my master's program, I worked for another group, digital light processing and back in Dallas and, and with them, I did my master's thesis work and that's who hired me full time after, after my master's degree. And then, um, in my, during my PhD, I, again, through my network, um, sort of as a consulting role, but you know, I'm not going to lie. We did call it an quote unquote internship co-op to, to keep some people happy, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, so I went back for like sort of my fourth co-op at Texas Instruments. I worked for the education technology group and used my engineering background, uh, and as well as my engineering education training to understand and do some market analysis for what the engineering education looks like as a market for, for that business group. And so that was really kind of fun crossover between both of the worlds that I was living in. And uh, so, yeah, so they were incredible experiences that helped me to decide what I liked about engineering, what I didn't like about engineering and helped me to decide um, what kind, what kind of roles that I, that I was looking for at the time. And, um, and in fact, my fourth time at TI, that was really important for me. And that's where I decided that I did not want to go back into industry. Um, And that was one of the big questions that I went into is, um, do I like, uh, the, the kind of career path that I was heading on, or is that something that I wanted to explore again? And so that's what co-ops are really good for. They're, they're learning periods for you to explore options and kind of a safe space. And, um, and I did write a paper about my experience as a PhD student slash consultant, um, that I can share with you guys. Um, Terrific. Yeah. Is that available, uh, online? Yeah. It's on my publications page and then you can download it from there. Sure, we'll put a, a link to it in the show notes. Did you have the option of just leaving TI when you you know decided you wanted to shift away from industry? Um, it sounds like the, they were pretty involved in your education, and I was wondering if there were any kind of contracts where you had to give them two years or anything after you graduated. Well, you know, TI did pay for all my school. They paid for both my undergrad and my master's through a really incredible fellowship. And um, if you count all of all of the, the investment that they made in me, it was over a couple hundred thousand dollars. But um, unfortunately, the the dip in the economy in 2009, I got sucked into it because I was the newest and the youngest in my group. And, um, mm-hmm. and they, between layoffs and, and um, retirements, I think it was something like 42% of DLP was no longer there. And so um, it was a really great invitation to go back and get my PhD, which, which, was good because that's been my plan since I was five years old. And, um, you know, it, it was always kind of a hard thing of like, God, I don't think I can give up this engineering salary. So they gave me the invitation to do that. (laughs) And so, (laughs) yeah. And so I, so I took that, I mean, within about five days of, 
of the riff, I was already had already applied to Purdue. So, so yeah, that was the next step for me. It made cool. a lot of sense. That was neat. And, and so we've got uh, Brian and Carmen, who are both electrical engineers, who would probably understand. I'm a mechanical engineer. You'd probably talk over my head easily. But so what kind of products were you working on there at TI? So for DLP, I worked on the digital micromirror device, which is the um, has been the landmark device for, for that business group. And so um, what started out is, so if you go to any digital movie, movie like at the theater, there's something like a 97% chance that it's a digital micromirror device that's controlling the what you see. And so that device is anywhere, like on the size of your thumb wire, anywhere from like 250,000 to, you know, a million little tiny mirrors that are one atom thick that are sitting on hinges that we can control. We can turn the mirrors on and we can turn them off. And those are the pixels that you see in the, in the moon. Well, you don't see them, but, um, but if you had really, really incredible Superman vision, you might be able to see the pixels on the screen. And um, so I worked on a technology that part of the technology to help us make those devices cheaper, which is a big part of engineering, as we know, better, faster, smaller, cheaper. And so um, the the old devices are were hermetically sealed, almost hermetically sealed using a gold package. And that was, as you can imagine, quite expensive. And so my, my thesis and my master's work and my the work I did as an engineer looked at exploring um, using wafer level packaging. And, um, and so I looked at the permeation and diffusion of moisture into the headspace using an epoxy um, wall instead of, instead of gold. And so it was a fun experiment and, and I had a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of great work that came out of it. And so I hope that they're still using that work today. So. <laughs> was, was that, uh, useful? Cause, uh, for lower cost devices, I, yes. cause isn't Google glass a small DLP? Well, I don't know. It very likely might be. Um, but that was the point as we were trying to enter into markets outside because um, one of the reasons why DLP had such a big riff is because we had entered into the television market and we did not succeed in that market. And so that was part of, of looking at making the devices better, faster, cheaper, smaller is to go into to markets like that, the cell phone market, which, again, I don't think panned out. Um but right now, what I heard, I talked to the senior vice president a couple of weeks ago, and he's saying that there's a lot of really cool applications they're seeing in, in automobiles and lighting, like um, using the DLP and, and the lights. But, but my favorite application, which were, were not specifically the devices that I was responsible for, but um, if you go to the hospital, they have a device called the Vein Viewer. And I don't know about you, or maybe your little, your baby <laughs> Greta that I, that I hear um, you know, sometimes it's really hard to see our veins. And while I'm a big baby, I care less about me, but I care a little bit more about little tiny babies. And especially when they come into the doctor and they're dehydrated and you can't find their veins. And instead of poking them over and over again, you can use the DLP um, chip, the DMD, uh, the, the vein viewer, and it uses ultraviolet light. And you hold this device over the arm or whatever part of the body that you're trying to find veins and the ultraviolet light shows where the veins are and you know, like on the top of the skin. And so that's a really cool application of what started out as, you know, something for entertainment and that is really helping babies and it's changing lives. And so I like to know that the, the technology I was working on was really helping people. Greta appreciates <laughs> all the help she can get. So ask for a vein viewer when you go to the doctor. 
mental note made. Now, Megan, you and I had a chance to to uh, sit down and talk for a few minutes at the uh, the ASEE meeting uh, a month or so ago. That was the American Society for Engineering Education, and uh, we so we chatted for a few minutes, and you were sort of telling me about your background, and you did, in a sense, I guess, have a role model in that you had other members of your family that were programmers, so you had some sense, perhaps, of what programmers were like and what they did, and some guidance, you know, into this this tech community. Uh, but the stories, uh, some of the stories you shared with me uh, sounded awful similar to uh, those we heard from uh, Cherish Bauer-Reich in uh, episode 49. She talked about being sort of actively discouraged from pursuing a uh, an engineering career, and I'm wondering if you sort of ran into the same uh, same roadblocks. I don't feel like I was actively discouraged from it, but I think I was passively discouraged from it. I think that there are hmm. lots of messages in our society that tell us what we should and shouldn't do. Um, as as a female who really excelled in all of the classes that um, I was on the robotics team, I, I was doing all of the right things that would point me in that kind of career. But when it came time to pick a career, I picked something that was appropriate for my gendered stereotype, you know? Mm-hmm. And so um, it was sort of this passive discouragement rather than, you know, an active discouragement. And so um, I, I certainly received some messages in the industry that told me I didn't belong there. <laughs> um, but I hope that doesn't happen to a lot of women. Unfortunately, I think it probably happens more often than we acknowledge. But um but yeah, so there, there's a lot about our social environment, both in, in education and in the workforce that don't always encourage people that are different to be there. And so, um. And, and I just, you know, as a, as a, uh, uh, a white middle-aged male, uh, who's, you know, been in engineering for a long time, it, it, you know, I haven't gone through, I've gone through experiences. There's a struggle into becoming, a, there's a struggle with being a young engineer, regardless of your background. Uh, but some of these ad- additional roadblocks that others had to face, quite honestly, I wasn't very aware of in- until I went looking to see, you know, what these difficulties were. Yeah. So, I mean, one story is on my first day, my first full-time day, I had um, a-, a gentleman who I had to subsequently work for <laughs> tell me, like, you know, you were only hired because you were a woman. and um, And it didn't matter that I was also really smart and, you know, had done really great work and and, and things like that. And, and so that's, those, these are the kinds of messages that's pretty explicit, but, um, most of the time the, the biases that we receive as young women or, um, or people of color as well in engineering, they're very implicit. And it means that people are sending messages that they don't even realize it. You know, um, sometimes my, my, I just spent the weekend with my, my dad and my mom and my grandfather and my uncle and, and they're amazing people and I love them. But they were just sort of raised in a different time in a different environment. And and I know that a lot of times the language that they use, like they don't mean it the way it really comes off, you know. But those messages accumulate. And when we get a lot of messages that tell us that we don't belong in a field, um, they discourage us from going into that. And they can also discourage us from staying in that kind of career. And I, I as a as a as someone who is no longer practicing as an as an electrical engineer, I, I often reflect on was it an accumulation of those messages that told me I didn't belong there that ultimately influenced my decision to choose another path? I don't know. Maybe. Okay. Well, I appreciate your sharing that. And, and we'll, we'll talk in a little bit about uh, some of the, you know, the small details. I, I want to ask you about, uh, uh, you know, the importance of things like, you know, positive messages, just, 
things that you can do to help others along that's not a big deal but but can mean a lot. But before we get into that, I just wanted to ask about uh, – we're going to talk in a couple of episodes about the possible benefits of a MBA to engineers, but you got your master's in engineering, and I'm wondering, so what to you was the benefit of having that master's degree? Well, the benefit of having a master's degree was – was my engineering degree, right? So my, my undergrad is computer science. And I actually, um, even though I was in the SET program with TI, and I applied for and interviewed for a job at TI with a computer science degree and 12 months of co-op experience, and I didn't get hired. And they said, you need to be an engineer. And so, um, so I went and played in Europe for a while, and then I came back and got my <laughs> master's degree uh, so, that I could, so that I could go work for TI. Um, but an MBA is certainly, I think, useful. I, I don't think an MBA would have been useful for me at 25, 26, or however old I was. I think I was 24, 25 when I was getting in my master's. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it would be would have been more beneficial having worked for a few years and to be able to use that skill set to go and to have some insight into what I'm actually studying so that I understand business before I understand how to run business, you know? Right. So... Uh, during my PhD, I did do like a little um, amp, uh, a little program that's part of the MBA school at Purdue, and I actually plan on getting an MBA at some point. So, um, not that I need four degrees, but I'm going to do it. It's <laughs> <laughs> just I, such an odd number. You got to round it out. <laughs> yeah, I know. So, I, I think it's a useful degree, but I think, in my opinion, I think it's really useful for people who have some experience. But I also think that I'm also a of the opinion that professors who who've had some work experience are also um, they have a lot more to offer their students than those who've just you know been in in the university setting their their whole career. So yeah, so I hate I hate to mention this, but it, but if we follow that logic, shouldn't we send everybody off to spend three or four years in the engineering profession before we bring them back and educate them as engineers? I was hoping well, you'd say Europe. I think that there's some foundational knowledge that you need to know before you can do the engineering, right? So when I was an undergrad with a computer science degree and I, um, or working on a computer science degree, working at TI, there was so much that I did not understand. Like I hadn't taken circuits and electronics and, and tests and all these things. And so, um, that's what my master's degree provided for me, provided me that foundational, um, knowledge that allowed me to to, to apply that. Um, and I was actually in a really, really cool master's program that was, it was very practical. Like every, we were taught by retired Texas instruments engineers. And so everything that we did was teaching us about how to do this in the real world. Um, and so finding for students who are looking for, for programs to study, find something that you're going to be educated by people who are, driven by real world applications and that you're not stuck learning theory because, because that's, that's not going to be the most useful to you. Um, and, and the work and the workforce. So. Yeah. It's definitely kind of the philosophy we've embraced here in the engineering commons too, for many of our episodes, being able to apply what you've learned in the real world. And I think it's really important that you are applying it as you're learning it. Like it's not a, let me take three years of classes and just do a senior design project. You know, it's, it's working in some kind of form and fashion where you're immediately able to use what you're learning. Oh, it sticks in your head so much better that way. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you finished up your master's degree, you worked for a while at TI and then I, I, the chronology, I'm not sure I have with the, with the, uh, the, the, uh, 
the layoffs and that kind of stuff, but you, you went back for your doctorate and I'm just, so what, you said you had, you were inspired to get your doctorate when you were five, which is pretty early. It took me until I was in my (laughs) forties. So you decided you wanted to do that. So why engineering education? Well, I certainly didn't plan on getting a PhD in engineering education at five because, as a matter of fact, the field was not even around back then. <laughs> right. Um, but I just, you know, a typical overachiever, I always wanted to be the best. So um, that's the best, right? And so that was right. the plan. And uh, But, you know, when I was working at TI, I, I started volunteering with a group. I, I, was a, I was a role model. I went and talked to students all across the Dallas-Fort Worth um, Metroplex about how cool engineering is and what my experience was and, and the same kinds of things we're talking about here. Like, what's my story? What kinds of cool things did I work on? I would take show and tell. And I just really, really enjoyed working with and talking to students and telling them, like, how cool this career was for me. And a lot of times I would talk about how I got into it because I wasn't like you guys who just said my dad was an engineer, so I was going to be an engineer. It wasn't that clear cut for me because um, because there were a lot of other messages that told me I shouldn't do that kind of thing. And, and I started also doing some teaching of educators. So I started teaching counselors about what is engineering? How do you talk to kids about engineering? And uh, and through the process of that, I um, some one person who was also kind of volunteering, he said, hey, have you ever heard of this PhD program in engineering education, which had just started a couple of years earlier at um, Purdue University? And um, so I had that in the back of my head. And, you know, when the riff happened, I was like, that's it. You know, that's what I should do. And, and the rest was kind of history. So I was inspired by my working with students and working with educators to, um, to increase the participation of, of women and, and students of color in engineering. And then I thought about my own experience and having been, a, you know, a student for a long time and thinking, how can we improve how we educate students? Because I knew that my master's program was really great because of the application, but I had heard from colleagues that they were in programs that weren't so fantastic. And so um, I figured there was some opportunity to influence change. So, you know, while you're going through and studying your PhD and everything, um, have you, have you seen, you have to focus your areas more on the actual education, you know, we're teaching the circuits class wrong, it has to be more theory based or have you found yourself focusing more on the perception of getting kids into engineering that, you know, you don't have to be uh, a frizzy-haired, you know, absent-minded math science genius in order to be good at it, or has it been a mix of both? I actually ended up focusing pretty early on on, like you said, the perception of engineering and how to increase the participation. Um, and I don't, I don't know that that was actually intentional. Um, it just sort of, it just sort of happened, and that became my my strong passion and interest and desire. And so I just kind of felt, you know, and and to that direction. I suppose I could teach a circuits class. I, I have the, the, the instructional design training from my PhD that will allow me to create a course that is effectively designed and uh, designed in a way that it could effectively teach students and um, probably. So yes, that, that's part of our training is to be able to do that. Um, but do I want to do that today? Not today. Um, <laughs> maybe tomorrow. Maybe, maybe in a few years. And that's something that I'm kind of um, looking on is keep staying connected to the university academia. And so, mm-hmm. um, so I could do that. They train us to do that. So We talked a few episodes back about engineering technology, which has a few differences from 
the traditional engineering curriculum. Mm-hmm. So can you give us sort of a, you know, the, the quarter tour of what in, an engineering education curriculum looks like versus, say, an engineering, uh, again, the traditional engineering curriculum? So the, the School of Engineering Education at Purdue, which is the first in the world, um, to have created this PhD program, we are housed in the College of Engineering. And so there's an expectation that you have a technical background. Um, and um, you either it's either you either have to come in with a master's or there's some expectation that you earn one. So the PhD program is essentially, in my opinion, it's taking engineers and turning us into researchers, education researchers. And so um, one of the challenges that I took up is to learn about qualitative research. I mean, as engineers, we can all value and appreciate quantitative research, right? We like numbers and we like to um, see how those numbers influence things. But there's an entire other world in social science um, research that um, is qualitative research and understanding people and how people are involved and in what we do. From an engineering context, that's actually really important as we talk about design, you know, and understanding um, our users and how people are going to use the products that we're creating. Um, and, and maybe you're not so tied to the user at a, at a tiny widget level, but at some point your company has to, if, if you're creating some kind of end-user product, care about the user. And so qualitative research was really interesting to me because I just wanted to broaden my skill set. And so I, I took a dive really quickly into focusing on that, that form of research. But um, the, the curriculum taught, we, it truly is a philosophy degree. Like we, we, we learn about the philosophy of engineering, the philosophy of education, and, and then putting those together. Uh, we, we sit around and talk a lot. It's completely different than my master's where it was so practical and like doing projects like we, we sat around and you had to think a lot <laughs> yeah. and write a lot and talk a lot about ideas. And it was a lot of fun and it was totally different. And um, th- that might sound easy, by the way, but it was not. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, so we also took classes on how to, on instructional design, like understanding how to um, align content assessment and pedagogy and to really move, move engineering forward in a way that we can better educate our students based on how people learn because we know a lot about how people learn but as a whole engineering hasn't changed much in its standard of instruction over the last hundred years Um, and so so many of my colleagues do research on how we teach engineering at at various levels um, from a k-12 level all the way up to you know of course the um at the university and so there's a lot of different research going on within within engineering education. I mean, you were at the ASWE conference, the American Society for Engineering Education, and that's been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. But as its own discipline, that's that's been pretty new. And you used a term in there that educators know about uh, pedagogy. And the first few times I heard that, it's like, what in the world are they talking about? What? So what does that word mean? Um. Well, so I didn't either when I started at Purdue. Um, so pedagogy is the study of how of how we teach. Um, and I think the actual definition of pedagogy is how we teach students. I think there's a different word for how you teach adults because peda, I don't know. I'm not a linguistics person. But, um, <laughs> Me either. <laughs> but in general, we just use pedagogy in like the form of which you teach. So that's talking about act the activity. So if, so for example, if I, 
if I want to teach you something, I'm going to determine what that something is. And then I'm going to determine, I, then I have to think about like, well, how do I know that you're going to know that once I let you know that? And then pedagogy is the middle. It's like, okay, so now that I know what I want you to know, and I know how I'm going to know you know it, this is how I'm going to make, this is how I'm going to deliver it. And so there's a lot of different strategies and tools. And that's where things like, you know, problem-based learning and cooperative learning, and there's lots of different, you know, activities, you know, within, within those, those different styles can come up can exist in a classroom. And so, um, and so we're, we're working to help incorporate that into the engineering program. So Purdue, like they have a first year engineering program that's really hands-on and it's, um, and students are using active learning rather than passive learning and sitting and listening to lecture, which, uh, our friend Dave Goldberg, who I think has been on your, your show. He has. He talks about, you know, the fact there's sometimes a good lecture is a good lecture and, and there's no doubt, <laughs> but there's no doubt that that's true. But at the end of the day, like that's not how people learn. They're not going to learn by sitting in a lecture year round. They're not going to learn the most effectively. So you had mentioned while you're talking about, uh, you know, the overview of your program dealing with students, you know, from kindergarten to 12th grade and into a college level. Have you found there's one group of kids that are, you know, easier to work with, whether you set them up with a role model or, you know, you go into the classroom and do a hands-on activity or something where you can, you find yourself connecting with them easier? You know, do high school kids seem jaded because they've been through math and science and think it's stupid or, you know, what, what have your experiences been with that? I think, I think as human beings, like we, we actually have a natural desire to learn and explore. I think that we we teach that out of our students a lot of times. Um, right. And so giving, stu- <laughs> so, so giving <laughs> students an opportunity to do that, if, if you can get all of like the social cultural mess aside, in my opinion, I think students, regardless of their age and gender, like they'll really dive in. But a lot of times there's a lot of messages that tell us we can't do that. So for example, you know, robots, race cars and rockets tend to be the only gateway to engineering mm-hmm. right now. And if you look at from a social context, um, we are raised to think that robots, race cars and rockets are boys toys. So if that's our only access and then you want me to come play with robots, well, I'll play with robots because I grew up with brothers and I'm pretty tough and I'm an athlete. So I'm used to being in that kind of world. So it's okay for me, but what about that other girl who doesn't have that same strength and self-efficacy to kind of exist in that world, you know? So, um, so I think it's really fun when you can find ways to do engineering that kind of breaks past those social barriers. And so I, I don't have like a set age that I think is more fun because I think at the end of the day, people like to play and sometimes we can really make engineering fun in that, in that context. But, um, Sorry, I don't. I can't pick a grade, but I've worked with. I've worked <laughs> That's with, fine. I mean, you, maybe you haven't worked with all of them. I don't know. I'm just asking questions. <laughs> I haven't worked with all students, but actually, I do have experience working with everywhere from like um, preschool and elementary, and um, all the way through high school. And so, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I, I think if you give them something fun to do and in a context and an application that's fun, I think they all like to dive in. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised, too. I volunteer at uh, the Raleigh Maker Fair all the time, and I teach kids how to solder. And, you know, you can get a little five-year-old kid excited about, you know, electrical engineering. In a, in a sense, you know, you show them the LED that blinks, and 
you know, give them a two-minute overview because there's five kids behind him waiting to solder about how it works and then sit him down with the tools, and he's he's raring to go. Or uh-huh. she's raring to go, yeah. Yeah, it's like you say, just show them something fun and you can hook them real easy. Mm-hmm. So, Megan, you, you graduated uh, very recently with your Ph.D., was the, was the official ceremony uh, occurred when? It was August 9th this past Saturday. Wow. Well, congratulations. <laughs> yeah, it's quite the accomplishment. And, and along with that, I understand that you've uh, taken on the role of a, uh, the duties of a new job. I did. I started this past week. Um, so when I started my PhD, I because I had been doing some volunteer work when I was working for TI, I um, once I, once I, you know, started graduate school again, um, they started paying me to do some of that work. And, right. and before I knew it, I had a business and, um, and my mentor, my, who was hiring me, she was like, yeah, so you should, this is a work agreement. This is a contract. And now you have a business <laughs> and, and that really grew. And so that first contract that I had is now my full-time employer. And so, um, Okay, so, so you started as a as a consultant there somewhere between TI and and uh, taking on your new job with the employer. Yeah, so I've been working with this same kind of work since two thousand and eight. I think my first, I think technically my first contract with NAPE was maybe in twenty ten, but there was some. It's you know a nonprofit. There, there's different funding sources, right? But um, but yeah, so it was the same kind of work that we were doing. And so, um, but yeah, so I had a consulting business throughout my PhD, which as we've been talking about was an incredible application of everything that I had been learning during my PhD. So I was able to immediately listen and learn and say, how can I take what I'm learning right now and grow my business? How can I take what I'm learning right now and apply it in the real world? And so, um, and I can fairly say that I, that I, that I, did that in a unique way that, that none of my colleagues did at Purdue. And so a lot of times they'll come to me and say, I heard you have a consulting business. What was that about? How'd you do it? And, and so, um, so that was a lot of fun. But then it became like this long-term interview. And so the National Alliance for Partnerships and Equity, they, um, they actually offered me a job um, loosely, like a handshake contract back in December, mm-hmm. and it was a result of the fact that other people were offering me jobs. And so they said, Please don't leave us, and um, and so I was really happy to to commit to them because they are doing great work, and I'm really excited to be a part of a part of that team. Right. Before we go too much into your new duties, though, I do want to ask. Lots of our listeners are interested in starting small businesses, and so what any lessons learned about starting consulting business, or or the toughest thing you had to discover about running a small business? So. I got a little greedy early on and um, I think I'm the only person in the world to have done that. But uh. Oh yeah. <laughs> Nobody else has that problem. Yeah. Because I thought I was worth more than a lot of times what people were willing to pay me. And a lot of times I actually think I was worth more than what people were willing to pay me. But um, at times I would do work for, for less just for the experience and just for the opportunity to, to do that work. And so, um, so my advice is, is that, you know, you don't have to say yes to everything, but learning when good opportunities come along and when it's worth kind of taking kind of a pro bono, um, you know, approach to, to doing some kind of work. I, I think that's really important. I think I out, you know, proposaled myself out of many, many opportunities, but, um, but that was a learning curve, you know, 
learning how to make contracts, that was a something that I just had to learn as I go, particularly as a PhD student who, um, you know, I want to own some of my intellectual property and I didn't want to sign that over um, all mm-hmm. the time. And so having the, the strength to negotiate that um, was really um, important to me and a process because people who hire you, they think that they are going to own whatever you do. Right. And so learning to negotiate, that's kind of important as well. Um, and then uh, the other thing that's really big is having a web presence and um, learning how to develop your thought leadership. Mm-hmm. And um, what's one of my favorite stories, and um, I probably shouldn't say this on a live air, but um, <laughs> so I wrote this blog once and it was, I thought it was a pretty funny blog. It was, um, it was in response to some news effort and I titled it, um, if I had a million dollars, it was like, I wrote like this tune parody to the bare naked ladies song. Um, but it was a little bit pointed and, and about a a large company that had just donated like $5 million to a large, um, engineering education business. (laughs) And then, like, the senior vice president calls me and says, hey, I read your blog, and I'd like to talk to you about it. (laughs) And so he's, like, really concerned, and he wants me to change my blog. And I was like, oh, you're concerned about the 12 people that read it? (laughs) But he didn't (laughs) know that. But he didn't know that, you know? And and so here I am having this really great conversation, and it's opened up a door for me to have a, a working relationship with them. And, and, um, I didn't change my blog, by the way, because it wasn't, it wasn't ugly or mean. It was just the truth. And, um, and so, so that's just one example of thought leadership is sometimes you can trick people to thinking, you know, more than, you know, um, (laughs) but not being able, not being afraid to put things out there. And, and that was a strategy that I took in my PhD is that, you know, we have to do a lot of work, a lot of writing. And so I put everything, I wrote everything for all of my classes with the intention of putting it on my website. Um, interesting. And because I'm like, shoot, if I've got to do this work, I might as well put it out there and maybe it's useful to someone and maybe it's not, but, um, but it also, it, help the quality of my work thinking like I'm, this isn't just going to be relegated to some mysterious folder somewhere. Um, yeah. But that helped to develop a brand and, um, and that was really important as I was looking for jobs and, and people saw that I had a web presence and, and some clout online. And so, so yeah, so making that consistent. I just want to ask, so this idea of an internet presence is this something that is sort of unique to your thought pattern or are your contemporaries having the same thought pattern as they come out of school? They're not. Um, and one of the reasons why I actually have the web presence is because of Dave Goldberg. Um, he came and was at Purdue and was talking and he was saying, Hey, you know, we're as academics, we're doing all this great work. Why aren't we putting it out there? And so, I took that piece of advice at the same time that I was developing a consulting business and thought, okay, well, let me put what I'm doing out there. But most of the, my colleagues and advisors, they were not doing that. Um, but I mean, if you take, I started like just following other people who are running consulting businesses. And so I kind of followed their model. I don't blog very often at all, at all, at all. But, um, but every once in a while I would. And a lot of times the blogs that I have were, were from my, 
work from my classes, you know? And so you can tell when there's several blogs in a row that I was in a class or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Well, and it, it's, it's tougher if, if you're sitting at a job, you know, for, for instance, Carmen's job, uh, you know, he's working for a semiconductor manufacturer. It's not like you are working for a semiconductor manufacturer. Are you not? Yes, I, am. I did get that part right. right. Intercell. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so, but, but it's not like he can sit there and blog about, well, today I, uh, you know, I adjusted this chip and I did, here's exactly what I did to show, you know, my intelligence in this area because the, the uh, corporate attorneys would have a oh, field yeah. day, uh, uh, bringing him into line. I can turn it into an app note and have it published in EDN or something. But it's the same concept, right? Like you oh, yeah. would, you want to claim what you're working on and developing. So it develops your thought leadership because if you don't write about it and put it out there, nobody knows you did it. Exactly. And if you actually solve the problem, then, you know, you're, kind of holding everybody back by not sharing a solution. You can always just put the mask set up on GitHub. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they keep those under lock and key. I don't have access to those. <laughs> Do you know, if the, the, as the topic here is on role models, um, I, I know that I became a role model for several of my colleagues at Purdue and other students because I, you know, about once every couple of months I had someone calling and asking to Skype and say, how did you do this? What did you do? And those are the same mm -hmm. kinds of advice that I would give them is put your work out there, develop a thought leadership. But it also has a lot to do with networking um, because I can honestly say too that the business that I got, I never went, once went to commission it. Um, it was always people coming to me through my network, people I had worked with or even like through Twitter. I got a lot of business through Twitter. Um, this podcast so, started through Twitter. It did it really? Yes, it did. It's amazing what Twitter can do. It's changed the world. <laughs> Power to the people. <laughs> so, Megan, your current job now that you're just uh, starting is with, uh, you mentioned the National Alliance for Partnerships in Equity. Can you tell us a little bit about what this organization does? So, NAEP, as, as I will call it from here on out, is um, right. they are focused on improving equity, access, and diversity within high-demand, high-wage, high-tech jobs. Um, mm -hmm. And those happen to be mostly careers that, you know, we talk about like science, technology, engineering, and math. But it also means jobs like nursing, where men are underrepresented, or even um, mm -hmm. elementary teaching, where men are underrepresented. That's not, not necessarily high, high wage, but um, the. But very but important. But yes, very important. Um, but there are also other careers that are in like cosmetology where we don't always think that they're high, high wage, but they, there are a demand for them and they do have opportunity to have high wage and, and men are really underrepresented in those kinds of things. So essentially we do primarily focus on like the, the more technical careers, but in essence we focus on um, really breaking down those barriers, but it's not just for men and women. It's for underrepresented people of all types. You know, when we look at engineering, there's a gross disparity of participation among um, Hispanics and blacks within engineering. Um, as mm -hmm. well as people with disabilities, as well as um, those who aren't heterosexual. And so it's breaking down barriers that improve equity and access within the workforce. And that really starts in, in education. And so um, the most of the work that we do partners with and, and with K-12 and universities, we work a lot more with, with community colleges than we do four-year institutions. Um, but yeah, so we teach teachers how to improve equity in the classroom, 
but we also work from a um, problem solving standpoint. We don't just go teach. We help them. We have a process called the program improvement process that looks a lot like an engineering design cycle. And we, and we help them um, target the issues that they're having in, in their specific school or, or, or environment. And so, um, so yeah, that's the, the work that Nate does as a whole. So the recent uh, revelations that, that Google and I think Twitter and some of the others here had uh, really poor diversity numbers, is that, was that not a surprise to anybody in the organization? It was like, well, we knew that all along, or, or was, it, uh, was it a hopeful sign to, uh, that, that at least these corporations are taking a look at this issue? Well, we've known that all along. So um, uh, it's rewarding that their companies like that are um, starting to recognize it. Texas Instruments, um, as, as an example, they, they started tackling this um, a couple of decades ago. And uh, Taiwan Pulley, who is my mentor, champion, friend, um, adopted family, she uh, was a retired vice president from TI over workforce development and diversity, and so she started that that work um, a couple of year, a couple of decades ago at, at Texas Instruments, really focusing on improving diversity and equity equity within within the workplace. So TI was like way ahead of the curve, but a lot of other institutions, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of other businesses, industry like Google, they maybe they haven't been, and so I, I saw a recent video. YouTube video of one of the leaders talking about it. And um, he was talking about how bias plays a role in, in the workforce. And again, that's not, not anything new to us because that's the work that we do. But we love to hear people who are in a position of influence really calling that out and hopefully creating programs and processes within, within, their, within the corporation that are going to influence change because it is, a, it is really important. And, um, and again, like it's not that we want less white men to be engineers. That's not the point, right? The point is that we right. need more engineers and we need to encourage all people and every kind of person to be an engineer. And in order to do that, we've got to understand the things that are, um, that are limiting them. So, um, and, and a lot of that becomes starts with role models as, as, um, as early as early childhood. So. Do you find companies come uh, ask you to help them with uh, retention problems, whether it's getting a role model or mentorship program started at their, you know, their business? Um, I've never had anyone come ask me about that, <laughs> but um, but it does mean that they don't. Um, but you know, that's a that's a great question that I think that we would like for people to ask us, particularly at Nate, because I think that we're we are really poised with um, a good tool tool set to help industry solve some of those problems because we have an incredible team of people and um Taiwan works with NAPE as well and so with her background you know we have we have the kind of people to, to talk to that but um a lot of it has to do with culture and that is at the core of what NAPE talks about we talk about how there are stereotypes in the world and how those stereotypes um become biases and those biases become messages that we send and and those messages, um, they can accumulate, whether they're good messages or bad messages. And those, and those messages and the accumulation of them um, influence the self-efficacy of a human. doesn't matter their gender or color or creed. And, um, and once we affect their self-efficacy, that then affects their behavior. And, when, and if we continue to create environments where we're discouraging women or people of color... 
and it, it decreases their self-efficacy, then they all quit and leave, then we're just reinforcing the stereotype, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is the core of Nate's work is changing those micro messages that we send, acknowledging the bias, changing the micro messages, and then in essence, influencing the, the wheel and changing those stereotypes over time. So that is the core of what we do. And um, I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to work with industry. I don't think that we have a strong partnership at this time, but we are looking towards, um, towards things like that. I, I do, I have done some training with Texas Instruments. I've trained, um, their role models. So they have a speakers bureau. And so I went in and talked about how to be an effective role model and the positive languaging and messaging and things to use. And so, um, so what are the attributes of a good role model? Well, there are three key things. Um, All right. Should I get my flashcards <laughs> wow, ready? This time? <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, the first thing is just to follow in line with what I was just saying is to challenge and dispel stereotypes. So um, there is research to indicate that engineers are often our own worst enemies. We go up and we somehow perpetuate these really awful stereotypes that aren't always true. Um, and so you can list the stereotypes all day long about what, what people think of as, of, as engineers, but we've got to challenge that, you know, like, um, there's a stereotype that I don't want to list all of them, but we're not all Dilbert, right? Um, so life not and engineering, by not by choice. And some, <laughs> but yet some people might have that persona, but we don't all, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we yes. don't all sit in cubicles. We don't all, you know, we aren't all antisocial like i I mean here i am talking to the four of you and you're quite gregarious right so you challenge that stereotype of of what an engineer is to some degree right so as long as you don't take tools off my bench without asking we won't have a problem (laughs) okay i'll keep that in mind (laughs) um and some of those other messages and stereotypes are things like you have to be some ace or all-star at a you know physics and calculus and and that really isn't the case you have to take physics and calculus to do engineering but you don't have to be you know top of your class you don't have to be even the top 25 percent of your class there's no requirement you just have to have the ability to get through it and survive it and use that to 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 do your job to whatever degree like um i know that Probably not all of you are running calculus problems every day. Maybe you are. I never did um, as an engineer. Um, no, I've, I've said several times in this podcast, I, I worked 20 years as an engineer and never used a ca- uh, an integral. Never had yeah. to. Um, but I, I mean, it's not to say that it wasn't useful to know what the concept of an integral was or that I wasn't doing summation sometimes in an Excel spreadsheet uh, just because I needed a rough estimate of an integral, but... I didn't have to pull out uh, my textbooks and figure out how to integrate my parts or anything. Um, But there's this fear that students have to like do math and science for the rest of their life. And, and we know that math and science from the context of what most students are learning in a K-12 setting is not that exciting. And so (laughs) when, when the equation of math plus science equals engineering, if that's the only message they're getting, that's a terrible picture, right? Because who wants to, to do K-12 math and science for the rest of their life. Very few people. And so, but, but Geometric proofs are where it's at. I know. Yeah. <laughs> but one of the first Side things, side. But one of the first things that we as role models or just as humans, when we go to talk about engineering, we just regurgitate the stereotype of, well, I was good at math and science. 
And I actually probably at the very beginning of this, when you asked me, I actually started with that. Um, I also said I was good at the other things, but, um, but there's this, this expectation that math and science equals engineering. And we need to change that so that math and, you know, creativity equals engineering, that collaboration equals engineering, which leads us to the second really important key value for role models is that we promote proper STEM messaging and engineering messaging. And the National Academy of Engineering actually did like this market analysis study of about engineering. And the three key messages that, that we as engineers, that we as um, the educators should be talking about when we talk about engineering is that um, there's three messages. The first is that engineers are creative and collaborative problem solvers that engineers make a world of difference and help shape the future. And that, um, oh my goodness, I just, (laughs) (laughs) I say this all the time. Okay. Engineers are creative and, oh, engineer, engineering is essential to our health, happiness, and safety. Um, so these are the three messages, health, happiness, and safety. Engineers make a world of difference and help shape the future. And that engineering engineers are creative and collaborative problem solvers. So when we change the conversation from math and science, you know, do this for the rest of your life to these messages, these are much more attractive to students. And so we challenge role models to take these messages into the classroom and to take these messages into their lives. You know, even even when you're talking to like your niece and nephew or your your neighbors, talk about the cool work that you're doing and how it's changing the world. You know, you may not feel like at your lab bench that you're changing the world, but what is that product doing? What kind of device is that product going to going into that's making a difference? You know, I talked about in the beginning how I got a lot of reward out of knowing that the digital micro mirror device went into this health application that was helping babies. You know, mm-hmm. when we start telling those stories rather than just widgets on a lab bench, we talk about the big why. We talk about why these things are important and, and the difference that it's making. You know, you, another report that you can pull up is the the grand challenges for engineering, and um, and talk about these fourteen grand challenges and how the there are huge applications of the work that we're doing to solve really really big problems. Um, so that's the second thing. So first is challenge and dispel stereotypes. The second is promote proper messaging about engineering, and the third thing to be a really great role model is to appeal to student work values and. Um, we have to understand that not everyone's like us and that uh, everyone has different drivers for why they choose careers. You know, I talked about when I was 18 and what, when I went into engineering, I, I picked it because it came with a full scholarship and I heard they made a lot of money. And that was it. <laughs> right. So I was really driven by this extrinsic value. At 18, that was really important to me because I all I wanted was to get out of small town Orange, Texas, um, which is a lovely town, and I like to go back and visit now. But um, <laughs> but my family didn't have money to support me in college, and um, and so I all I knew is that money was my way out. So at the time, that was my work value, my primary work value, um, and. And it may not be unlike a lot of students these days because a lot of students may not have any concept of money. So money equals their way out. But we have to also talk about other work values. And the other key work values are these intrinsic values that, you know, it's this idea of I'm just really interested in it, you know, or this idea of autonomy where I get to, to work on um, on my own and kind of manage my own projects, which we know engineering is a lot of. Like a lot of times you may not feel like you have autonomy because if you have a micromanaging boss, that really stinks. I'm sorry for you, but... A lot of times, like you are responsible for a piece of your industry's pie and, 
and and there's a lot of autonomy in that and helping students to see that um, the the sec the third key work value is social work values which a lot of young women fall in this category not all but a lot of them and you know the messages that we talked about you know engineering is essential to our health happiness and safety that engineers make a world of difference and help shape the future that engineers are collaborative like those appeal very nicely to social work values um mm-hmm. And in in addition, a lot of the the younger generations are showing that are trending that they're moving more towards these social and intrinsic work values than than the older generation generations. So learning how to appeal appeal to students through those work values are really important. And then the fourth work value is prestige. Um, You know, engineering as a discipline is a is a prestigious career. And I learned that very early on when I told people like um, that that I'm, you know, going to be an engineer, um, everyone's like, Ooh, ah, you must be really smart. You know, like (laughs) I know like when I first started dating in my early twenties at the bar, like I quit telling guys that I'm an engineer because they would all walk away, you know? Um, (laughs) they still do by the way, but, (laughs) um, but yeah, so like there's this prestige that comes with being an engineer. And so, um, when we talk to students, we've got to learn how to talk about our careers and our pathways in a way that touches on each of those different quadrants, you know, extrinsic, intrinsic, prestige, and social, so that we make sure that we can appeal to students where they are and where they might be going, you know? So um, just to recap, challenge and dispel stereotypes, that's the first thing. Second is promote proper STEM messaging, and you can learn more uh, about engineering messaging, and you can learn more about that at, um, I can send you links that you can add to the to the list. Sure, we'll, um, put, we'll put it in the show notes. And then an appeal to student work values, and, and those are the four values. And that means talking about more than the sports car that you bought with your profit sharing, you know? Like, let's talk about the, <laughs> the difference that you're making in the world, you know? So that will help students. That's, that's the best way to be a great engineering role model. Right. One of your uh, blog posts – maybe no, it wasn't a blog post. You, you were talking, I think, about how you uh, – uh, some of your early athletic endeavors, but you talked about positive messaging that you were getting encouragement, you know, small bit, bits of information, positive feedback from one of your coaches. And I just wanted to ask, you know, what, so in the engineering work world, what do you think is the importance of uh, positive messages? Well, I think the messages that we send are more than just a pat on the back at a girl, at a boy. Um, the messages that we send, you know, really kind of span the context of just communication and communication can be paraverbal or context or, you know, like there are lots of different ways that we can communicate. Um, but me- messages are really powerful and acknowledging that um, how we interface with others and how we interact with others has a lot of impact on people. I mean, just think about a time when you felt hurt or slighted in the, in the workplace or in mm-hmm. life, right? Um, we can all probably name a time and then if you think about like why you were hurt or slighted and, and then think about if that person meant it. A lot of times people surely mean to hurt us, right? But a lot of times maybe they don't, right? <laughs> um, so right. say that you sent this really thoughtful proposal to your boss and your boss never responded. And maybe right. the first time you're like, okay, well, he's busy. And then it just happens a couple of times again. Well, the fact that you have like, not received any response um, from your boss, you're getting this message, this really strong message that your work isn't valued and appreciated. Um, 
And so, so, so yes, as, as leaders, if we're managing others to, to be more responsive, that would certainly be one way. Um, or if you are a manager and you just are terrible at email, um, find other ways to, to address those needs, you know, with your, with your employees. But, um, but essentially making people feel like they belong, if, if we're talking specifically about industry, is really important. Um, if, as humans, we tend to like people that are like us, you know, we congregate around others that we have shared experiences with. But if there, if you have a team of, um, you know, nine men and one woman, one woman, which is typical in engineering, since about one in 10 engineers is female. And all you ever talk about with your group is um, the Simpsons and football. Right. It doesn't create any opportunity for that. It's, um, I don't know, I like football. And so I learned to talk football to talk with my, you know, engineering coworkers. But I'm also from Texas, right? So we all know <laughs> football. Um, right. But I'm just saying, like, think about how the culture that you create and how it may be unintentionally excluding someone. Um, and that not, not just doesn't just mean the female. Like, what about someone from a different nationality, like if, um, or whatever, right? Think about the culture that you create within your group. Um, so maybe there's someone within your group that is homosexual. If you're constantly um, talking about things or, or politics or something that is oppressive to that person, then they're going to feel some sense of inequity and like they don't belong and that they, they're not in a safe space, you know? Um, and it's, right. I, and I'm not asking like people to like just change who they are. I'm just saying be cognizant of, that, of it and think about like um, watch people and watch how they interact with you. If they start pulling away and, 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 and what, what are the implications of that for your team? Um, and what would, how much more effective would your team function if you guys had a stronger um, and more improved culture that was more inviting and equitable to, to all different kinds of people. I don't know. Yeah. So messages are really important and they're not just um, verbal. Like the, like the one man told me I didn't belong there. You know, I was only hired because I was a woman. Like that's pretty explicit. And, um, (laughs) but he probably doesn't even remember ever saying it, you know, like it probably was just what they were all thinking because a lot of times I know my, my father who I love, like, he even has these biases about women in engineering. It's like, you know, for a female to, he said that my, again, I love my father, but they just are raised from a different time. But he told me one story when I was 18, I met this, this vice president at TI and she was, um, she was single, a single mother. And she had done gone from, she was a teacher and she'd gone to engineering school, became an engineer, worked at TI, worked her way up to a vice president level. And I called my dad and said, yeah, you know, this woman, how incredible. Like, if she could do it, so can I. So, right? So, there she is. She became my role model. And she still is my role model to today. Like, and she's still a part of my life. Um, right. And my dad's response was, and it was so fast. Like, I know he didn't even think about it. But he said, well, she must have slept her way to the top. Hmm. And, and sure, you all call for pause there. But we know that that becomes so often a stereotype that's part of corporate culture. And, um, and it's not okay. (laughs) Um, and so learning how to be aware of those messages and, you know, um, when you say that sometimes we say things and we just straight up, we're like, 
goodness, man, that came from the depths of my soul, this bias that's just deep from who we are. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean it. That was really inappropriate. Just call it out, you know? And I think creating a space where where a team of people feel empowered to also call those things out and be like, are you aware of the bias <laughs> of which that you have in that tone or something like that? Um, so, yeah. Right. Well, and we, if we have a sort of underlying theme to this podcast, I th- think it's that engineers are human too. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think sometimes we – sort of the engineering culture is that we get to the point where we think, well, if we're not unfairly critical of their engineering work, then that's good enough. That, you know, as long as we give somebody a fair shake with regard to their calculations or their designs or their uh, – you know, their charts or whatever they're bringing to the table, then that's okay. And we forget that whether we're included in the conversation and whether we're invited to join the group for lunch and whether, you know, we get those, that, that positive feedback or we get the negative feedback, whether unintentional or not, that, that those contribute heavily to our happiness in the workplace. And the root of this idea of bias is that you may think that you are not being biased. But the sheer fact that we're human is that we are, right? Um, okay. <laughs> because I I can admit that I, I mean, I am more likely always going to be implicitly biased towards white people than any other thing. And it's not because of any choice that I'm making, but it's the fact that I was raised in a community that has, well, we're all what we are all ways raised in the communities, most likely of strong white privilege, but it doesn't mean that I value people of color any less, but I have to be aware that I have this deep implicit, but I call it um, like a riptide. When you look at the ocean, it's beautiful. You know, you, you can't tell, but so often there's this riptide that there's, there's running underneath the surface that if you get caught in, it will wash you away. And that sometimes is really changing how we interact with people. Um, and so, so, so I have to be aware, you know, when I work with people of color in my work, I oftentimes will say, you know, I want to, I want to start with this and tell you that, that I come from a place where I have a lot of bias and I'm working to, to, to challenge those biases. And it takes time. We can challenge those biases and it takes time. But when you look at studies, and it's, this is men and women are also guilty of this. If you look at studies about implicit bias, if I give you a resume, they're identical, absolutely identical. And there right. are studies about this. One says John, one says Jane. John is going to get significantly higher approval than Jane. It's the exact same resume, the exact same text. The only thing that's different is their name. And so we just have this bias that men are going to be better and smarter than women. Um, and so again, like when, when I'm standing up presenting my data, I'm having to fight through all of that bias that our culture has. And, um, and even though, and and again, like it's, it's, it's just recognizing bias exists and taking that into account and how we interact with others and through the messages that we send. Um, but again, trying to tie that back to role models is that, um, let's see. So when we talk to, students so if we're looking at okay well let's look at career role models because that's what you guys started with you talked about the people who were in and your jobs who taught you the trade you know um, right. think about um how much influence you have over the young people to also recognize the bias and of 
and the the depths of the culture that your institutions or that your industry has and to really challenge those. Um, so you could be a good role model um, or for the young people to kind of manage up and to, and to help other, the, the older generation think about um, how times need to change and are changing. And um, yeah, so you can be role models both ways. Fantastic. Well, we should uh, probably think about wrapping this, this up, Megan. We've, uh, we've taken up a good portion of your time. But uh, that one pretty quick. Uh, before <laughs> it, it did, but uh, I'm going to ask you uh, two questions. One, which I I would love to go in depth, but we really don't have the time. Is you said that uh, part of your uh, engineering education degree was to talk about the philosophy of engineering. So uh, my first question is: Do you have a book to recommend? If you had one book on engineering philosophy, what would you recommend? Well. <laughs> I thought about this earlier and um, I could give you my entire syllabus from the class because, but that would not be very fun because I assure you that was not fun reading. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But there I have, um, if you were to read one thing, I would encourage all engineers to read the executive summary of this book called changing the conversation. It's the book that talks about these messages of how we talk to and change about change the conversation about how we talk about engineering. And if you've got, mm-hmm. you know, a few minutes, you can read this report. Um, it's called um, Changing the Conversation. I'm trying to think of the actual domain. Messages for Improving the Public. Yeah. Um, but there's a website called um, engineering mes- engineeringmessages.org. And this is a great okay. website um, that, that you can get the report. And you can read about the problem with why engineers are, you know, misspeaking what public misperception, you know, it talks about a lack of diversity and why these messages are important. And so um, engineeringmessages.org, it's a, it's a great tool and it's a great site for, um, for engineers and for all people alike. Um, but, but read that and think about how you're talking about engineering and how you're perpetuating um, good or bad messages and how you can use those messages to influence both young people and the people that you work with and the community, because that is also a really big, um, big role in how we're raising up the next generation of engineers is is not just us engineers, but the public understanding. So wonderful. And, and so I guess question number two is uh, for our listeners, many of whom are in the, uh, the workplace, you know, so they, they go in tomorrow, they sit down at their desk, plunge into their work, or they're listening to this podcast while they're at work. You know, what's a good first step for them to take action to be a better role model? Well, to be a role model isn't a formal thing, right? It's not like you're signing some contract. <laughs> to be a role right. model really means to um, to just use these messages that, that we've talked about and and to influence young people. So one thing that you can do is to find a speakers bureau, a local speakers bureau, where you can volunteer to go talk to students and tell them on their career day or during their college week about how cool engineering is and about your experience. And the research is really strong that young people make the best role models, not that old people can't be good role models, but um, but K-12 students relate better to people who are closer to their age. So this is really, really, you know, good for, um, for younger people. Um, we especially need more female and people of color to be role models because when 
more young people see people who challenge the stereotype that all engineers are white males, then this will begin to, to change the stereotype that, that, that we have. And so, um, so the thing that you can do tomorrow is to read about engineering messages, agree with it because we know that they're true. And I hope that you think <laughs> that they're true. And if you don't think that they're true, think about how, reframing your work and the context of these messages that you are doing work that's essential to our health, happiness, and safety, and that you are doing work that's making a world of difference, it might change your quality of life if you think about about the difference that you're making in this world. If you if you are kind of stuck in a place where you feel like I'm just, you know, cranking out widgets, think about think about how you're changing the world and tell people about that. Tell people about the cool technology. Think of ways to take the technology that you're developing and create a really cool activity and then go to your local high school, your local middle school and say, Hey, I've got this activity. They will welcome you with open arms and a background check, but, um, (laughs) but go into the schools and tell them how cool engineering is and fun and exciting ways. So that's what you can do. So if you if you call up the local speakers bureau or you you contact the local high school or junior high school, they won't laugh at you. They won't say we you know what are you talking about. They'll be interested. Uh, I would like to think so. I mean, I've worked with thousands of educators across the country, and they're all like, "How do we get people from the real world to come in?" And if you can come in and say, "Hey, I've got something," I mean, you can't come in and say, "I'm mean, going to take up a week of your class." Right. Um, but if right. you can come in and say, Hey, can I talk to your students? Most of the time they'll be very, very welcome. And, um, and you know, also acknowledge that, you know, be persistent, you know, ed- not all educators are as active on email as people in industry are because they're on their feet teaching their students all day. So, um, so don't give up, like <laughs> contact a few different people a few different times if it takes, if it takes that, but, um, but know that our young people need to, to know these kinds of things. And it also starts with your family. Talk to your nieces and nephews and your kids and the, the little kids on your street. Um, the people in your world, you don't have to just go into the schools to be a great role model. Terrific. So Megan, uh, we will let you go, but, uh, before we do, if somebody wants to get a hold of you or learn more about you, where should we send them? Uh, you know, Twitter, email, that kind of stuff. The easiest place to find me is on my website. You can go to meganpollock.com. That's M-E-A-G-A-N-P-O-L-L-O-C-K.com. And from there, the top right, that'll link you to my Twitter and my every other thing that I've got. Um, and so my Twitter is Megan Pollock, and my email is on the website too, mail at meganpollock.com. I'm happy to help you. I'm happy to help you understand how to be a great role model. If you have any questions or comments about my background, I'm, I'm more than happy to help you. And, um, you know, if you're interested in improving equity, access and diversity in education in the workforce and how that influences engineering, um, please reach out to me. I'd love to talk to you about it. Fantastic. Well, Megan, thank you so very, very much for uh, sharing your wisdom and your insight and your knowledge with us this evening. We've enjoyed it. Great. I was really excited to share the story and wish you guys all the best of luck in your careers. Well, thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks again for coming on. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson.